Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, I know that not everybody obviously can see this, but I know some people can. So I'll talk. Look, I've got a little Halloween, you know, shirt and uh, hoodie on. It's eight months and a few days to Halloween. <laughs> so we're counting down. Uh, <laughs> I just um, felt like I just needed to be. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to get into it on the show, but you know, we were discussing before just, I've been having a little bit of, you know, struggling struggle bus this week. And so I needed to, uh, feel good about myself. So I put on some Halloween stuff just to reclaim my joy. And yes. if you follow me on the, uh, you know, on the social media, you saw, I posted myself in a lovely trapeze dress from La Fama Noir. That's all alien HR Giger themed, just trying to find ways to shake up and, you know, feel joyous so God, that was a beautiful dress tr- too i know oh i can't wait to like actually wear it out um because i'm kind of preserved i mean i spoiled it a little bit but not totally because i have some other like accessories and things that i'm, I'm gonna wear with it and concerts i'm gonna go to wearing it so uh, i look forward to you know that but see you know sometimes you just have to find ways to reclaim your joy joe you know and uh, for those of you that suffer from you know anxiety here's me getting on my uh therapy thing yes. um you know sometimes we do what's called ruminating which i do i can get really stuck in like a thought cycle and 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 uh practicing conversations you know and i uh, i catastrophize and assume the worst a lot of times because of, you know my past and uh how i how i was raised mm-hmm. uh you know so sometimes a really good thing is to just interrupt that cycle and do something different and and so that was part of that that was just me like you know what i'm gonna put on that new outfit and the jacket and the hat and take some pictures and just shake up my energy and feel better and it worked and i suggest that for you if you get stuck in a ruminating thought just interrupt it stop it's a stop gap (laughs) i'm gonna have to remember that uh yeah it's very helpful just like totally change your energy get up from where you are find something else to do distract yourself it is it is helpful um along with all the other like cbt stuff you know that you can do Mm -hmm. to fight intrusive thoughts but anyways no cbt and cbd there we go wonders for me (laughs) (laughs) so that's where we're at uh today uh what about you joe how you doing good look at these new glasses see we this is how we get people to subscribe to patreon we just say (laughs) look at us look look at these do you like these new glasses what do you think i do they're very very cute uh they're sort of what's that like shape they're not exactly like a not a pentagonal. I don't know what to say. I just they're like, the like they have. They're definitely not like they're not fully round. They are yeah, more on the some... square, rectangular side. But I really wanted big glasses um, because, like, I'm already noticing a huge difference. Uh, that the glasses that I was wearing, which I have in my hands right here, they were like a lot smaller, and I could oh. I could see. I bought these online. First mistake. Um, couldn't try them on. And so you can really see like the edges. This one, you can't see the, you can't, uh, you have to really try to see the edges. And I wanted something because I have a round face. So I wanted something more square because it will uh, break that up. And I went to this lovely store. They don't sponsor us, but I'll name them. They're called Vint- uh, Revival Vintage Eyewear. And oh, it's it's cool. in North Park. It's near my new job. And what's cool about this store is that it is a never-worn vintage eyewear. So they go um, to different, like, designers or places that have, like, dead stock. They're just, like, unused uh, that never like unused uh, specs that never made it to uh, uh, showroom floors, and they just buy up the stock at a discount. And it was so quick, so easy. These have a little sheen on them because I have them blue light blocking, so I can yeah. sit in front of my computer for hours. And yeah. they're really great. I love that. I love that glasses come with that now. Yeah, because contacts I don't think do yet, but. Maybe they do. Maybe they're more expensive. I don't know. I've never you, been offered you can a blue definitely, light contact. Um, you can definitely buy like just it's much 
more it's much inexpensive now just because of how popular they are but you can buy like nice or decent frames that just have the blue light filter on it so that yeah. way you can you know if you don't need it to see you or need it for you can just use it so that way when you're at the computer for long stretches it really helps reduce fatigue um but I that's actually blue, not a bad idea. Blue light blocking, like it was a lifesaver. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah. been a big part of my effort to like decrease my screen time, which we talked about last week on the show of like, you know, removing Facebook and, you know, trying to find ways to like put my phone away at night. Um, you know, I'm not always successful because I do like, especially when I go out to concerts or stuff at night, it's like mm-hmm. you kind of end up being on the phone, you know, or you end up like taking pictures or, you know, having to like, so it's hard to stay really committed to it. But through the week, like putting my phone in my office has been has been a help. I, I, I think my sleep has been better. I don't feel as... um it's foggy, um, you know, and again, I'm trying to do everything possible to avoid uh, exercise, <laughs> which everybody's like, that will really help, you know, you know, clear your head. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> Let's try blue light blocking first. Blue um, light, yeah, blue light blocking. <laughs> um, Come on, blue light blocking. Do you watch anything fun this week? Oh, I guess uh, real quick, I should say that Megan is out on Peacock in an unrated version. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we watched that the other night. Uh, the Sam Squanch and I, who I think overall enjoyed it. Uh, and again, revisiting uh, that conversation about like dolls and mm-hmm. children. It's just, yeah, I don't, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they do with the sequel. Yeah, and now that Megan's a little bit more accessible for those who didn't want to like go to the theater necessarily to see it, but who have Peacock, I'm curious what the mm-hmm. uh, what the conversation's going to be. I I want to watch the unrated version with you because we watched it. We didn't we didn't watch it together. We didn't watch Megan right. regular together. So I really want to watch the unrated version with you. Um, yeah, at some point. So whether that's your first time viewing it or not, but I I do want to watch it with you. Oh no, we watched the unrated already. But it'd be oh, fun. Good. I would watch it again. It's an it's another one of those movies that I think is a great popcorn night kind of movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it's like just yeah, it's just fun. It's fun, fun, fun. Um what about you? You watch anything this week? Um this week or read uh, another book, maybe? Did you finish another book? No, I <laughs> haven't finished another book. It's almost March. <laughs> I know. I, I I that's why I was like 12 books in a year instead of saying one book a month, because at least that gives me oh, some I buffer. Oh, I see, I see. Okay. That's <laughs> so true. That You're, right. Um, You're right. You're right. I'm, I'm put, putting an expectation on you that you did not give. Sorry. And I I'm I communicated uh my intention back to you in order to <laughs> You know, we're setting boundaries to no peace. <laughs> Just trying to keep you accountable. I, and I, and that I appreciate. <laughs> I've said it to enough people now where people are holding me accountable. And I, and like previous <laughs> Joe would have like resented that and of not ever talked to those people ever again. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> but you can't with me. But I can't because well, I talked to you. <laughs> um, but the thing, like the book that I was reading for February, like I was trying to read a queer black author and. Mm-hmm. I realized that the book is good. Like the book is good. The author's voice is very, very great, but it's like, it is too, it is too serious for what Mm. I, for the type of reading that I think I like can actually engage with regularly. And so, and so I, I've put it on the shelf right now to revisit at a later time. And I'm, I need to find another book to, uh, to start soon. Um, but uh, what I've actually been re-watching, uh, first time ever re-watching this, is a show from recent history, uh, Superstore, on um, from NBC Superstore. Watching it on Hulu right now. And I was like, damn, this show came out like, this show came out in like 2016. You know, like it came oh, wow. out, like yeah. it was a Trump era show. Like it started before and then like, dove into it and now we're dealing with so like no it came out like fall 15 and it is delightful but it's also like this intense nostalgia for like recent history because superstore would end in 21 and they deal with like pandemic stuff so that's the other thing the final end of superstore would like deal with like it's it also becomes like a weird commentary on like 
life. And I think that's what made it so, that's what made it so successful before, because in an early season, there's like uh, Mateo, who's played by Nico Santos, is an undocumented immigrant. And there's like an episode where he gets like, he gets uh, detained by ICE, like they come to the store. Um, and then when you start to move into this place of like pandemic stuff, you really it's all those questions about like essential workers, but like these folks are just, they need a job. Like they need to be working and, you know, they didn't get to rest the way that other people like got to, you know, just stay home and do nothing. And uh, the perception. Right. And so um, it, it kept that all the way through, but it ultimately like, it's just fun and funky and weird and, like, I think it's the reason why Walmart started shifting from blue vest to yellow <laughs> because, <laughs> because the whole show, it's, it's basically yeah, a Walmart. It's very Walmart. Okay. Yeah. Huh. So you enjoy it though. You think I, I should watch it. Okay. I do. And I, I do think you should watch it. I think you would like, it. I think it's a bedtime show for you. It's completely <laughs> asinine and absurd. Okay. Um, the, this is not a spoiler, but in season two, the finale is um this the show is set in in St. Louis and so they in the finale there's a tornado warning and it like rips the it rips the superstore apart and oh. you know con- the now in season 3 the everyone's dealing with the consequences of what occurred <laughs> that's interesting you know it's funny when i was um still in my 20s so years and years ago centuries ago mm-hmm. uh i you know i managed a pizza place that like the 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 store you know one of the, it, it was like this um pervasive like i don't know like a myth vibe kind of thing of the store is that we had a huge tornado in blue ash ohio oh okay that tore the store apart and the only thing left standing was the pizza oven <laughs> and it was like <laughs> every time it fucking rained in an, in ohio like you know at that store it was like everybody started talking about it you know the only thing left standing <laughs> was the pizza oven <laughs> so what you're saying is we need but to i wasn't there oven. for that <laughs> yeah it was, exactly okay so climb in the oven if something happens um yeah precisely great 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 plan yeah, uh, and it was it was this huge hulking monster monstrosity of a, mm-hmm. of a pizza machine, or I don't know if you've ever been, you know, at a pizza place with like a, um, an electric type oven, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a gas oven. I, you know, I actually have no idea. Um, I never stopped to think about how the oven actually operated. You know, I just you put pizza raw pizza on the one side, and it came out the other side done. So that just reminds me of that. It was just such a a thing. And because I didn't like live through it, it was like this, you know, the, the, um, the old crew that had been there before, you know, it was just this thing that they had survived together, which again, like tornadoes are terrifying. If you've ever been in one, I was in a ton of them, you know, growing up as a kid, getting in a fucking bathtub with a mattress over you. Like they are really terrifying, but it was just such a, like what is this is are we like on some boat with like like you know like oh the big storm came and <laughs> <laughs> the pizza oven yeah the pizza oven but anyways um all right what did um i don't think i talked about it last time i met i got to meet uh stephen graham jones the author I'm, I'm not sure i talked about it on the last show or maybe it was because it was that night i can't remember uh what the date was <laughs> And because we play with time on this show, mm-hmm. sometimes I forget. But I went to a signing for his new book, Don't Fear the Reaper, a sequel to My Heart is a Chainsaw. Oh, okay. Uh, it's super fun. Really cool guy just speaking or reading. I just wanted to throw this in here before we transition. Um, it was really a lot of fun talking to him uh, during the signing, which was like completely un- unfettered or what's the word I'm looking for. Like, usually when I go to book signings, uh, this was at Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego. So support them, MysteriousGalaxy.com, I'm sure, or net or .org or something. Mm-hmm. Um, .tv, actually. <laughs> right. No. That's what it turns out to be. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. But um, people, usually it's pretty, like, you know, the author has a conversation, reads from the book. You know, you line up, you get your book signed, you get the fuck out, and there's no hanging out chatting. We were there forever because it was just like just hang out and chat time. You know, people Mm -hmm. were just, and nobody controlled it. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So when it was my turn, I'm going to chat with him. So we talked a little bit about um, subverting uh, like white Christianity in like his writing, like as an indigenous author, Uh, he's uh, um, part of the Blackfeet 
tribe. Uh, and we talked a little bit about blood quantum, you know, and kind of mm-hmm. like how that plays on, you know, these sorts of like typically dominated white narratives about zombies and like, why are white people so sure. worried about being colonized? Uh, you know, so we talked a little bit about that. And he also talked about, you know, in his work using uh, like a, you know, instead of like an Indian burial ground, it's like a Christian uh, mm-hmm. I you know, burial space that sure. becomes the source of like danger. And yeah. uh, so it was like super, super fun. So I highly recommend people read his work. I think I talked about some of his other stuff. Mongrels, uh, his book Mongrels is one of my favorites, sort of about a outlaw werewolf family uh, that centers a, um, a teenage, well, he start he's at various ages throughout the book, but he has yet to turn. Uh, so there's a lot of anxiety about whether or not he is or not, you know, going to, going to make the change, uh, mm-hmm. along with all the, all of these kinds of discussions about what it's like to be, you know, to live in poverty and to be kind of on the fringes of society and not really able to, um, find community. Sure including, you know, your own community. Maybe you don't belong there either or in your family. So anyways, it's a, be- it's a very, very beautiful book. Um, he also wrote The Only Good Indians, uh, which also brings in a lot of really cool conversations. So it was super, super fun. So if you are, well, his stuff is kind of dense too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would recommend that you maybe pick up Mongrels and read because it's fun and it moves quickly. It's almost like a, it's like a movie, it feels. Uh, sure. So I wonder if anyways. it's probably going to be a movie one day. I would hope they should adapt some of his stuff because yeah, he's, he's, he's a very interesting guy and a lot of complex relationships with like colonization, like you and I have talked about on the show and um, you know, and kind of Christian tropes and all these different things. So yeah, really, really fun, but all right, let's uh, just cause we got a lot to cover today and, and with our movie. So we're going to take a quick break and we will be back to discuss attack the block. What's up, everybody? This is Brian here to tell you about our podcast, Bingetown TV. Our hosts include seven best friends with a love for all things television. We cover a range of genres with a focus on fantasy and sci-fi, but also dip our feet into drama, horror, comedy, and pretty much anything we think is good television. We use the traditional deep dive formula for new live shows that are released week to week, but our calling card is our Rooks and Vets and Pitchtown TV series. Rooks and Vets pairs two of our hosts that have seen a show with two of our hosts that have not seen a show. Pitchtown TV is when we have a special guest pitch us a show by having us watch the pilot and trying to convince us to watch the rest. If you're craving more content on some of your favorite TV shows, then you should listen to Bingetown TV. Find us on our website at bingetowntv.com, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or wherever else you may find your podcast. All right, welcome back. So this week we are discussing 2011 British sci-fi comedy horror film uh, Attack the Block. And so I just kind of want to first set up that most of the discussion today that I want to guide is from Laurie Palmer's very (laughs) interesting um, article or I mean, it's like a research paper called Attack the Block, Monsters, Race, and Rewriting South London's Outer Spaces. So a lot of our conversation today is going to be pulled from that and sort of, um, you know, me getting Joe's response to, once again, really overcomplicating (laughs) a horror movie. But it's it's very delightful. So I want to start with, um, before we jump in like we usually do, just to kind of set the the mood for sort of how we're going to be discussing this film. So... Uh, This is from this uh, article. So it's a film directed by a British comedian turned filmmaker, Joe Cornish. This is his directorial debut, which I think is important to note because a lot of the responses called this like one of the best, like, you know, debut films. It's the debut film of uh, of John Boyega. Uh, We have Jodie Whittaker, who became eventually became the 13th doctor, the first female woman doctor. Mm Uh, you know, in the doctor who show in case, (laughs) in case you don't know what I'm talking about, dear listener. Um, Anyways, uh, so I was quite uh, surprised that like there was a lot of debuts, especially because like yeah. 2011 doesn't seem that long ago because John right. Boyega is so like looks so young. I think I did the exactly. math; he's like 19 in this. And um, John Wright, or who was the was John um, who who wrote the directed wrote 
the the film uh, Joe Cornish. Joe Cornish. Yeah. Joe Cornish would go on to like co-write Ant Man and right. like other like it. He I was like this is like this was if this was his entry it was spectacular. Yeah. So and this is his directorial debut. So the alien invasion action of Attack the Block mines similar urban genre territory as John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct Thirteen, Escape from New York. Walter Hill's The Warriors, and John McTiernan's Die Hard. It can also be compared to European city cinema, such as uh, Matthew Kasovitz's Lahan, including the latter's social commentary on the effects of repressive discrimination and destigmatizing media discourse upon the inhabitants of urban public housing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so that kind of brings everything that we're going to talk about. So we're going to talk a little bit about that urban housing. We're going to sure. talk about you know, masculinity, you know, who's the villain we're going to talk about race obviously uh and um yeah it's gonna be a lot we got a lot to cover so but let's start with as usual joe your your thoughts on attack the block your first oh my watch. god ring the alarm because this <laughs> this film was fantastic i would watch this again this is now a like halloween like put it on the list and watch it you know, for the month of October type of situation. And this film was just so much fun. It reminded me a lot of, um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Vampire, the Bronx versus the uh, Vampire versus the Bronx and on Netflix. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I just, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, Even though I could not understand sometimes what they were saying at all, because it's that, (laughs) It's that, you know, it's that particular, like, London slang. Like, it's that, it's that, um, um, I don't want to sound insensitive, but, like, it's just, like, it's, you know, it's urban London slang that you don't really hear often or that I have no idea. And so it's, like, I understand what's going on, but sometimes it's, like, okay, let me pause for a minute, go back, like, 30 seconds just so I can make sure. I thought about putting the subtitles on, and I don't think that would have, <laughs> I don't think that would have helped at all. <laughs> but ultimately, like, it was just... It was really, it was really good. And it's well, totally made by John Boyega's performance. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, all the, I mean, I just, I really believe everybody in this film. I think they do a really nice job. And I'm glad that you brought up the language because that actually is the fir- my first topic, language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and in this, in this piece that I'll be referencing throughout the episode, calls it a dizzying patois slang of the hoodie wearing gang of youthful muggers menacing the streets of South London. And so, um, sort of the origin of this film is that Joe Cornish, he himself was mugged and, uh, by a group of kids. And so, uh, he, let me see where, if I can find that story. Uh, he said, I thought about it a lot. It made me think about the kids who did it. I thought that they looked weirdly cinematic. They looked like ninjas or bandits in a Westerns. The bikes they rode looked a bit like something out of E.T. or the hover bikes in Return of the Jedi. The slang they used felt a bit like NADSAT from uh, A Clockwork Orange. And I thought, here's a setting that has only been used for depressing, depressing social realism. Mm. And actually, there's the toolkit for an action adventure here. And so it says that... Um, goes on to kind of discuss the that to an outsider's ear a new dialect can be as indecipherable as a map of an unfamiliar city uh so just as the characters traverse the city space they inhabit the spectator likewise navigates the accented slang of attack the block here are the dialogue patterns made deliberately immersive by director joe cornish and he says south london thing uh it's a south london thing where kids actually pronounce all the vowels and continent consonants a bit more than they do in north london in some films um Oh, well, this actually goes to another piece that I want to talk about in a bit about the tower blocks and how they're used. Um, But anyways, the the point is just that, uh, you know, I think it's kind of purposeful that we're sort of made alien kind of in a way by Mm -hmm. by this group of kids and by sort of they're talking very quickly. They're using kind of this slang. We're trying to like we're learning something about them throughout the film and then which we'll talk a little bit also uh, about race and all then how that's operating in the film. When these creatures come, then it kind of changes. You know, now we have another, it's like these kind of different, you know, alien spaces to, to sort of uh, explore. But I really like some of the, the conversation around uh, the language itself and sort of how it's, uh, how it's used uh, in the film. 
um, mm-hmm, and that you're mm-hmm. kind of learning through context, which is, you know, really cool. Cause I also, I, this is, I didn't turn on the, cause I'd seen the film before. So I kind of knew, you know, I was already kind of familiar with like some of the, some of the linguistics in it and sure, sort, sure. Of what, sort of what they're talking about. So I didn't turn on the um, subtitles, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Jeffrey, you know, commented a few times about like, wait, what did he say? <laughs> cause I, I'm like, I know they're talking very, very fast and they're um, again. Yeah. It is kind of like their, their own language, um, which again, I, in my grad program because like again i'm like 20 years well no not 20 years older but i'm Mm, yeah it's i mean we i have i have a classmate who just turned 22 she's so impressive like you're already in grad school you know so i'm good for her 16 17 years almost 17 years older than she is so sometimes it is very alien the way that they talk where i'm like wait what did you just say what does that mean (laughs) can you say that (laughs) sentence again how are you what are the context clues which here that's kind of what you're given and then again, that plays off really nicely about context clues about the alien species that comes and why, why are they here? What are they doing? And we kind of learn from both parties and the conversation keeps literally changing throughout the film. Um, so something else that I really liked about this article is mm-hmm. it discusses like the architecture of urban council buildings. Mm-hmm. And sort of how that's uh, utilized in the film. And it kind of, it also made me, because we're watching it. And I feel like, you know, in America, American cinema, like we have a real clear idea of like, if a, like when a film is set in like what we consider the projects sure. and what kind of film it's going to be, what it's going to be said. And if that, if that kind of translates, because this is a British film, you know, it's written mm-hmm. by a, a British man. The cast, I believe, is all British people. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's kind of like, is is it, can we kind of equate it in the same way? Sure. Because I was thinking back to when Clive Barker wrote The Forbidden, which became the Candyman here, uh, or became Candyman. It was in, it was set in like these kind of urban council estates, council houses in his novella. And then when they moved mm-hmm. it and set it in Chicago's Cabrini Green and and moved it to what we call the projects, it um, it still operated kind of in the same way kind of having similar conversations about, you know, places where that are largely um, inhabited by people who are considered poor, who are considered, you know, of a lower socioeconomic status, who are often um, black or otherwise othered by culture Mm -hmm. because of, you know, all the varying factors. And so I kind of looked it up because I was curious what the difference is. (laughs) And one of the things I found is like, um, that's a little bit different with council housing is that a lot of times they try to put other, so they build the housing itself, but there's also like a grocery store, a doctor's office. There are other things to support. Like it's a community idea that they have sure. sort of a, a, a council that's overseeing. Whereas here, it's like, we just kind of build a building and like try to house everybody there, but it's not necessarily, we don't build other supportive structures um not to say that the british are doing it any better or worse because obviously this this film is having you know a very similar conversation about like this group of kids who are making trouble well of course they are because they live here this is where they live this is their life it's making you know similar um social commentary it's not um it's it's something that like american audiences can re- like relate to and, and we have see, a like, visual language yeah we have a visual yeah. language of it we have a conception um however you know misconceived or not you know of what like basically i was like oh this is like i mean not to sound reductive but like i'm sitting there li- like okay we're in the british projects basically and and that kind of um, the kind of collectivist mentality, right? It's like, you know, we protect, we protect ourselves. We, right. we, we are all we got. We protect ourselves. We protect our own. Um, I think they even say it uh, to Jodie Whittaker's character. It's just like, you know, if we knew that you lived here, you wouldn't have gotten this. Like, you don't look like you live here. Yeah, absolutely. Which again, I love that you're talking about this because you're you are you're getting right. You're following exactly uh, because yeah, there is a whole identification when they uh, early in the film after after they mug Sam, 
after the boys, mm-hmm. this, this group of, and, and they are mixed race. They're not all black, you know, they're, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a mix. Uh, but again, you know, they're a lot of the social commentary and we'll talk a little bit about what horror noir says about this film as well, a little bit, uh, in, uh, later in the, in the podcast, in the show, um, you know, but they, they mug her, then the alien, you know, the first alien crash lands and, uh, you know, tries to attack them and they, uh, you chase it down, they kill it. And then they parade through, you know, their neighbor, their block. And, you know, we, you know, we own the block, you know, we're, we're in charge of like policing it. There is a real identifying, um, let me see, there was a good quote about that in the article that I know I pulled, but I also made, yeah. So it, um, there's a pride in the, in the, in the place that they call home, uh, their mm-hmm. positive conflation of self and place are in clear contrast to the stigma of deviance and failure promoted in public rhetoric toward the urban poor and their marginalized community. So there's this, um, you know, yeah, they feel proud to police the block and Moses himself, you know, he's somebody, he's a bit of an authority for this, for these groups of kids and others in the, in the neighborhood. So there is, there is a sense of pride. He's a community um, leader. Yeah. He is a community leader. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, uh, so to kind of get back to this, like the setting, the architecture of urban council buildings. So after kind of after the first world war, and then again, after the second world war, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, rebuilding that had to be done. And so the designers and planners of public housing in post-war Britain uh, you know, they envisioned a progressive synthesis of efficiency and community during the heyday of high-rise council estates uh, that began during the widespread uh, reconstruction of this time. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of moving, you know, instead of going outward, like moving upward and, you know, building up Britain and, you know, creating these sort of towering, like we survived the war and we, you know, and we're on the right side of history and we're going to, you know, do. This is a monument. Exactly. They become these sort of monoliths, which is exactly, I mean, it's a character. The thematic and visual center uh, is the looming monolithic Wyndham Tower. Uh, dotted with blazing exterior lights, dark windows, shot with slow tilts on an extremely low angle to suggest sort of a slate gray spaceship parked in the wilds of South London. Um, you know, and then within this, you know, this traditions of sci-fi, you know, you have a scrappy band of enemies working together, besieged stronghold becomes a living character and anti-heroes find redemption, which is, I think, very true for this building. It is its own character. You know, they kind of, they use it to uh, various ends uh, yeah. throughout, throughout the film. And something I really like is, um, so the design of exposed concrete inside now, because that's what, like, when I was watching it, um, and for those who may not know, the Sam Squinch was a, uh, uh, like, urban planner. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of where how he got to sort of the kind of work that he does now was, like, urban planning. So he was like, this building is so strange. He's like, do they really build these, like, kind of, like, projects in London this way? Like, with this stone, with this concrete? And, you know, it it feels like um, there's a a really, yeah, there's a really great great quote about the field of cold incarceration, of subordinating those within to the state's desire for rationality and modernity. And so you have this exposed concrete... Um, you know, it was very easy to build these, very easy to crane them, to put them up. And they just thought they were going to be, you know, concrete was inexpensive. It was flexible and believed to be indestructible. But of course, as time went on, what happens? You know, the pristine whiteness that the post-war planners and architects imagined for these concrete utopia uh, became, or utopias, these concrete utopias, is that they cracked, chipped, stained from pollution, air pollution, uh, and they eventually became this oppressively gray dampness of concrete, uh, especially as they deteriorate over time. And so again, this it just plays this really interesting role of like all the idealism that that mm-hmm. sort of came out of the war and of building a place for like, you know, we're going to take care of the poor and we're going to like provide, you know, services. We're going to do these sorts of things, just kind of become these like really oppressive and depressing looking buildings. And so these kids are sort of operating, you know, and working in that. Uh, they shot at council estates, Aylesbury and Haygate. Um, mm-hmm. And for South London, they've become these buildings that they filmed at have become symbols of urban blight and the failed social engineering of post-war housing policies. Uh, and the discourse in tabloid and mainstream media brand the residents and their communities as deviant, criminal, or abnormal. 
which again, I think is exactly sort of what's playing here. So I think it, that just really helps contextualize what it, the conversation is happening sort of in this, in this, uh, in the film. Sure. Um, and then of course we have like, this group is kind of working to rewrite that in a way. Cause they're really kind of claiming this space. They use it to their advantage when the aliens come, you know, they know this space really well. Uh, they know how to get around it. They know how to um, operate within it to, to protect themselves and, and to, to build community, mm-hmm. which again, I think is actually really, um, really, really cool. And in the movie, um, there's a really great sequence. So the blocks corridors have like the light switches at either end. I don't know if you remember which part I'm talking about when they come up and they enter that dark space. Um, you know, there's the overhead lights. And as they enter the frame, they hit the switch. The thematic and visual effect is that the light turns on incrementally as the boys advance towards the camera. They bring the light with them as they get closer and thus become more visible. Uh, the active motion of advancing receding light or darkness through the film's multiple corridor scenes signals the shifting relationship between the characters as well as our perceptions of them which that is such a cool sequence when they come in and the lights are slowly sort of coming on and you know they're they're slowly reframed from kind of this you know group this gang you know of muggers they're going to be the heroes in our in our um, yeah in the film um which there is a really there's another like i said i love this so much the uh the conversation that's mm-hmm. um that's in this like paper i'm trying to find there was a really good quote about that um while i find it i'm just curious what your th- thoughts are on um you know just kind of like the architecture like does that resonate for you <laughs> i mean we it's it, see that's the thing is that like for me i don't I don't have a conception of what, like, growing up, public housing was something completely different, right? It mm. was, we, it wasn't necessarily, uh, because you can't build that high on Guam because of mm. her air earthquakes and typhoons. Yeah. So public housing is like, you know, a neighborhood um this like one neighborhood that like was kind of like quote unquote like the bad neighborhood but that's the other thing is that like public housing has this reputation for being um uh for being a place where like you know the uh, you know life's castoffs and you know discontents mm. are all like living in this area um, right and uh but the only language that i see as far as uh the only uh I guess language that I have to express about like what m- these conceptions of public housing are is just from media. But it's, it's interesting to see how kind of like almost universal this experience is. Right. Cause it's less yeah. like, of course the, of course the like professional looking white woman lives yeah, like they don't think that she lives there. So they're also guilty of internalizing that oppression um and that uh conception but again that's their lived experience right yeah yeah exactly that's a, that's a very good point when they realize that she she also lives there she's like a recent graduate of her nursing program so she's like you know still kind of in the early part of her her life you know she's figuring herself out there figuring themselves out so yeah it is mm-hmm. an, that is a very interesting conversation and uh one of the things that this um paper calls it which i think I mean, it's such a great term is brutalist like Mm -hmm. brutalism Mm -hmm. in architecture and you think about the brutality of of uh you know of poverty of racism of sexism of all these different things and then you know you sort of create this architecture where a lot of this is exacerbated and um and uh you know there it's like you decide what you think of people, then you create spaces for them to live in, and then you criminalize it. You do all that. So it's just like, sure. yeah, brutalism really makes sense. <laughs> calling, <laughs> calling them that. Um, sort of shifting a little bit to, um, I, I really like how they, uh, here's one of the things about the kind of moving. So uh, into a little bit to discuss um uh, some of the aspects that that race is playing so mm-hmm. we have um 
This is a quote from the Sarah Eilat from, she has a, a, a paper as well uh, called, what was it? Sorry, I didn't, I don't have my references here that I didn't pull from the, uh, from the paper. Uh, we are the martyrs, you're just squashed tomatoes. Laughing through the fears in post-colonial British comedy, Chris Morris's Four Lions and Joe Cornish's Attack the Block. Um, so she's talking about um, how this, it's like a parody of media stereotypes of gang members. Uh, the film undermines these by framing the teenage protagonist, particular urban Britishness against even more extreme others, a super black alien invaders. Thus the film sets up its Quote, black characters as inherently British rather than Britain's other, challenging the way that racist rhetoric attempts to position those of non-white ethnicity. So in Cornish's film, these traditions, uh, the, the, the central teen hero simultaneously symbolizes and disrupts. The monster evoked by contemporary media from cable news to screen fictions is the young black urban male, a figure of white anxiety and political expediency. He's linked to violence, drugs, the steely face of race and class-based resentments. This guy is never the hero. He never saves the city, but a funny thing happens and attack the block. He is, and he does. And, um, Den the actor who plays Dennis says, you know, the film highlights the media stereotypes of what a gang is and what a gang does. And then the guy who plays Bruis, he's the like, I think he's a zoologist. He's the like posh kid who like is just smoking weed and, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah the one who he, he kind of figures it out. But we'll talk we'll talk yeah. a little bit about that in the next part, because, yeah, yeah. I do want to I do want to get I do want to talk about his theory about the about the creatures. Um, but he says that um, the teens start with their hoods. That's maybe the metaphor. And they start with masks and you can't see them. And so they become, you know, the way that we're presented with them in the newspapers, a masked knife wielding youth. And then the guy who plays high hats says people get stereotyped all the time, especially like me, the way I dress, stuff like that. Depending on what day, if I put my hood up, I'm instantly stereotyped. And that's how most of the kids are in this. But as soon as the aliens come, they get a chance to show their true character, um, which is very interesting because high hats, he's kind of the human villain. You know, because yeah. I would even argue, as I usually do, the aliens aren't necessarily villains. They're like clover misunderstood. <laughs> it's not even misunderstood, but it's like they're wor they're working out of some kind of possibly biological necessity. You know, so much like in Cloverfield, where when the alien lands, or you know, it's freaked out, it's scared, it's a storming elephant rather than a um, a malicious kind of creature. So. To kind of replace some of that maliciousness, we have the um, the we have high hats, you know, who is pressuring Moses to sell drugs, who, you know, he's the one with a gun in the movie threatening people, um, you know, so he sort of is representing one kind of monstrosity and a certain type of like toxic masculine energy. And then, of course, you have the police who uh, constantly. Uh, so there's this idea of like policing surveillance of public space. Um, you know, power structures of law and discipline mark out the bodies of people who live on the margins of dominant society by symbolically rendering them as other. So even when, um, you know, the police are attacked and killed by the monsters, and then when they arrive at the end, you know, when he, you know, when Moses blows them up, they're still sure. holding him responsible because like that's all they see, even though. Um, Moses himself has sort of changed throughout this process and kind of realizing who he wants to be uh, versus what society has told him he should be uh, kind of speaking a little bit more to that internalization that you have, but they still only see him uh, in that one way. Um, and then kind of it loops back uh, a little bit. So then when the creatures show up mm -hmm. neon fanged uh they literalize monstrosity monstrosity so um disconnecting um so with the group symbolizing this sort of stigma well the monsters sure. really are this kind of danger uh but also again it's it's what i like about this movie is like 80 minutes it's like fun but there's so much that we can like talk about you know especially yeah. because like the creatures they're attacking this like council housing um so you know there's also this idea that they can um represent the social economic political realities of these sorts of places the the danger lurking in the dark corners of public housing you know people's like oh don't don't go to that area of the city well why Oh, because mm -hmm. it's dangerous well why is it dangerous uh, because what they don't say is that poor people live there 
Yeah. Um, black people live there. Um, no. you know, other people, uh, you know, other people of the global majority, like uh, they, they live there. That is the, like the unsaid no. thing. And again, they've been pushed into these spaces by this, you know, white supremacist system, by, by power structures that mm-hmm. influence the decisions of how people end up, um, where they end up living. And then again, how we, how we perceive them. Um, so something that I really like though, from, Noir, and they actually brought up sure. um the girl with all the gifts as well which we talked about last week so they they in in the Horror Noir documentary they back they put these two films back to back in their discussion so they talk about um within attack the block it's about feeling like you matter you know so these kids they're you know moses has been abandoned i think he's like an orphan basically you know because i think he lives with his uncle but he's kind of never around he's left his own devices he's having to figure out ways to survive yeah I don't think that we even like, cause you know, there's that scene where they're all going home to get like weapons. I don't think we see into Moses's home. Is that correct? Not at first because they're trying to, that's intentional. I think of like how we don't yet want his inner reality. So when he sends um, Sam through the building, that's like his place. Cause she realizes, Oh gosh, he's only 15 years old. He seemed, you know, you seem older. That's all conversation that they have. And it's like, of course he does. Cause he's been like parentified. He's had to like survive. He's having to like figure mm-hmm. himself out, you know, while living in, in under conditions where you don't matter, your body's constantly policed literally and figuratively. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's all this pressure. You're kind of having to be tough. You're having to be tough for the people that you care about for, you know, your fellow, um, his, his friends, you know, this gang that they're creating. It's out, of, it's out of these sense of necessity. So in horror noir, um, they discuss that it's, it's about feeling like you matter. Mm-hmm. And then connecting this with the feeling of in in the girl with all the gifts of like you know destroying the world to to mm-hmm. save yourself the mm-hmm. insurmountable odds yeah you know and so he risks it although it's different because the conversation here is he Moses feels personally responsible in the end he killed the alien he's splattered with its pheromones sure. Um, you know, that this is the zoologist thing we we're, we'll talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about. So it feels like a sense of responsibility. So he does risk his own life in order to try to save everyone else, but uh, out of a sense of personal responsibility, whereas with the girl with all the gifts, she's not responsible for um, what, what came. And again, that's it's here or there. It's like the cruel hand of yep. fate. Like the alien happened to land there. You happen to be the one to kill it. Now you're the one responsible for um, what's to come, you know? Yep. Um. I'm just kind of making sure I have so many notes. So dear listener, I hope you're following along because this is so, it is all over the place. Um, but, or I, I mean, I'm trying to keep it linear, but sure, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's a little hard. Um, uh, yeah, we covered that. So what, oh, so what, uh, the other thing that I'd like to uh, kind of talk a little bit about is the kind of sort of toxic masculinity. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting. The film starts with the gang mugging Sam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you have a group of men. It looks at least we don't yet, I think really realize at the be- beginning, you know, how old these kids are. They have the mask on stuff like that. I mean, they look young, but you know, it still looks like a group of you know males attacking a woman. Sure. And then this is juxtaposed when the when the female creature lands, and then we find out that she's probably being chased by males. It's like, is she under attack? Or, you know, so it's like kind of juxtaposed, like what is the role that they're playing? Um, so is the is the is the female alien fleeing from them and being chased uh, by mm-hmm. by those that are following her? Uh and then again as the film continues later on uh, we were talking about um oh gosh what was his name again it's it's, it's not like sticking with me um bruis <laughs> bruis it sounds like a made up like braden or something you know like these kind of like it's like you joke. know it's it's like we do we couldn't decide between braden and lewis yeah it's yeah oh that's delightful joe i love that um yeah it's one of those kinds of names <laughs> And that's a Braden spelled like B R E I G H D H A N N. Yes. <laughs> that's what I think of when it's Bruis. Uh, but Bruis, so early, you know, we, I, I'm pretty sure he's like a zoology something. He's definitely interested in animals. Um, 
uh, but he's a student and he's watching, he's early on in the, in the movie, we see him watching a documentary about moths and how um, the female moth lands in a place and, and releases a pheromone to like attract the others, an echo hormone that triggers a social response like bees, like beetles, like moths. Uh, that's a quote um, from the movie. And so, you know, this kind of, it, it changes like the nature of the aliens themselves. Like she's come here like, Oh, this place is pretty cool. Maybe we'll be okay. Maybe we could all, we could live here and start a family, I guess, start reproducing. So maybe that's what it is. She set off a hormone that like, let, let's see others know like, yeah, come in, come and land. We found a good place, uh, which again, also, you know, in early on, Sam refers to the boys as fucking monsters. And then mm-hmm. as throughout the film, she realizes that they are, you know, they're not who she thought they were. No, they're not the monsters. They're not the monsters. It's actually literal fucking monsters now that we have to deal with. Um, and so, and of course, then she stands up for them in the end that they saved her uh, from, you know, what's happening. And so there's, uh, there's this like changing conversation about, you know, men and women in in the movie, you know, kind of what we start off with, and what it becomes gotta say i did get a little like misty when she was like they're my neighbors right <laughs> they saved yeah. me and i was like ah oh, they're not gonna die in prison <laughs> you know the white woman said it was fine yeah um, but then they are arrested and it's very like the cut scene from get out yeah <laughs> like, yes oh no they were in the right but again i mean you know i, I Maybe the after is like they find all the alien bodies and then they're like, oh, okay, this is fine. Um, <laughs> we Now we know this isn't their fault. It's aliens. Uh, we realized that we were wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, oh, man, there was something I was going to say about that. Oh, so in like studying sort of one of the things that I've been studying in this study abroad class that I'm doing about the Holocaust is like how do ordinary citizens become murderers how do they become monsters how do they be uh how do they participate in genocide mm-hmm. and conversely on the other side of that question is how do they not like what sure what prevents genocide and one of the things is um uh, which is talked about kind of in this film is being known um you know that's something you you brought up a little i think you brought that up a little earlier about um when they when they tell her like oh if we knew you lived here you know, we wouldn't have done this and she's yeah. like okay so that's what makes it right or wrong like whether i live here or not whether i'm known yeah. or not uh and this is something that's really uh important to them and i think there's actually a really good uh conversation uh dang it you know i pulled all this stuff so i'd be organized and now i'm just jumping all over the place <laughs> yeah where did i put the there was something i put somewhere there was a really interesting quote about this but anyway so uh one of the things that we were that we're studying is that in germany during the 30s as the nazis kind of came into power there was this you know very concerted effort to push the jewish people out of uh of of space uh, and to um, what's uh, what's the word they used? Um, basically, um, expel them from the expel them. They were expelled from the human. Oh my gosh, Joe! <laughs> my brain, my brain, my brain. So my much. Brain. I mean, you are studying, like you know. Yes. Okay. So they were expelled from the community of human obligation. So many Jewish people or many German people, I mean, had not had contact with a Jewish person from 1935 to 1941. So it was very, very easy to not consider them neighbors, friends, you know, part of your obligation, human part beings, of your community. Right. Well, yeah. And then that's the whole, that's the next step. So it's easy to dehumanize somebody when you're like, I don't know. I've never, you know, talked to yeah. a Jewish person. You know, I, they haven't even been around here for six, seven years. Meanwhile, yeah. the Nazis, the Nuremberg laws made that possible. So they couldn't be in places. So on the, uh, the obverse, obverse of that is that for people who did live in community with Jewish people, particularly in um, Piaski, Poland, mm-hmm. 
there are very tightly formed communities between Polish people and Jewish people that kind of had a lot of interdependence. So though the people that were Gentiles, so these righteous Gentiles, they call them a righteous um, you know, people who risk their lives in order to save uh, Jewish people, to hide them. I mean, it was literally a death sentence if you were caught doing this. Yeah. Um, they did it anyways, because they were neighbors. They were, you know, so yeah. to like your point earlier, it's like, it really, it really means something. And this is how we kind of can, can combat totalitarianism, how we can combat hatred and fear of the other is by, you know, reaching out and by being in community and knowing them. Um, you know, so it kind of throughout the film, it really shifts for both of them. You know, they get to know her and, you know, maybe rethink, you know, the people that, you know, for her rethinking the people that she's thinking are villains yeah. and, you know, who she is herself participating in the oppression of and vice versa, like the people yeah. that, you know, maybe there's more to be said. Maybe we can, mm -hmm. you know, have deeper conversations about the ways that we're more similar than than yeah. different. Because it's like I'm looking at pictures of this of these council houses right now online. Mm. And it's just yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because, like you said, they were meant to have like infrastructure like a council to like support the people right. but it's fascinating because they what they've what the movie shows is that it's now it's also been very isolating right like right you don't know your neighbors if we knew you were on the block we wouldn't have done this to you but at the same time right. it's like her life is not on the block in the way that their life is controlled and like is the block is the center of it she's able to get out and she only just lives there and even though the like you can see the horror on their face, it's just like, oh, like, you know, you we we value community, but we just never figured that you would live here. And and even though the setup and the design is to create that community, it um ultimately does the opposite. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there was a really good, uh, another really good, I'm telling you, this article was really fun to read. It was like, there's a difference between alienation and alien nation. <laughs> mm. And it kind of is encapsulated um, in this, uh, in, in this film. Um, I wonder. If, that's I really I good. That's really, that's yeah. a really good distinction. I wonder if um, I probably couldn't even find it. I mean, I highlighted so many cool things uh, coming out of this uh, this article to use today, um, which I love. You know, this again, this just takes me back to old school fright school where I'd have something like this to really, like, you know, I should have sent it to you and made you read it. It's like 15 pages. I didn't. I, I was worried it would kill you. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> now that we know, she's reading. She's she's a uh, she's know. a reader now. I love an art. You know, I love an article. Every time you send me I something, know. I read it. That's because true. It's you're, mandatory. You're, yeah, you're pretty good about. Um, uh, that whoops alien whoops come on uh i am the worst <laughs> i was gonna try to isn't there like a find in page how do you do that oh yeah so it's um Dystopianism may sell, but in the hot, fierce, funny, vicious, and right abide action of attack the block, alien nation trumps alien nation. <laughs> so again, I just I liked your uh that's a that's a really good point that yeah, they like all these efforts to like create community uh did not they were not historically realized, we like to say. That's the <laughs> that's that's the nice way uh to say that. So, anyways, just to wrap up um with this just Again, I, it's such a fun watch. It's a super fun film. So not to like totally bog it down and, uh, you know, kind of heavy readings, but I just think it's deceptively complex. There's a lot being said in it um, you know, that that can be explored. And um, I really like just to kind of sum it up. So, um, you know, the framework of science fiction is, you know, it's a genre in which the other is traditionally a literally a literal monster uh, distinguishes truly alien blackness cinematically enhanced by visual effects. So the monsters do not reflect light from non-white British citizenship. 
In a study of young UK working class and multiracial residents of public housing, researchers found that what the kids value most is being known. Early in Attack the Block, the camera pans across a brick wall at the periphery of the state where the names of the teens we are about to meet are written in a tight cluster of graffiti. The outer spaces of South London are thus inscribed by its inner city youth, now seen, known, named, in parallel with the cinematic rewriting of Concrete Brutalism as Urban Community. Um, you know, which is just kind of pull, it just brings everything that we've sort of been discussing or that I've been talking at you this whole time with, <laughs> kind of wraps it all, all up really, really um, nicely, you know, that kind of puts a really nice uh, point on it. And um, yeah, just such a fun, fun, uh, fun film. And I love a movie that's kind of like you can both take your brain out and just kind of enjoy it as sort of a mix between like, you know, yes, an alien invasion movie or or a um, or a crime movie or a slasher film, even at times, you know, because the aliens are sort of, you know, um, there's just moments that feel very slasher moments of delightful gore. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, you can also like really sit and think about it. Yeah. The um the scene where Hi Hats is getting like ripped to shreds, the <sighs> the kind of graphic uh, or like the the, yeah. the effects on the face reminded me a lot of Dead Alive. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Like there it's were splattery. More, yeah, splattery and kind of like almost like melty clay-y type, you know, type of configuration. Mm-hmm. Plus it kind of he kind of looked like the skull um, in the mouth and the posters for yeah. Dead Alive. It's just, it was really cool to see like horror movies referencing. I don't, again, I don't know if this is intentional, right? It's like horror movies referencing, mm-hmm. or but at least like for me, as like, you know, kind of bringing back my, um, uh, my status in the novishit of horror, right? <laughs> like this is, uh, this is, um, so much more rich now that I like have like I understand and know like the visual language in which in on all these things, right? Like yeah. I bet I I really I truly wonder if Jordan Peele uh the end of uh, if the end of Attack the Block influences how he thinks about the end of Get Out, the original conception of Get Out. Right. Yeah. It's like what is there is there that going on? Like how does Attack the Block also inform Girl with uh, girl with all the gifts because it's also British black. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's, it's good to see pieces falling together. Right. And changing and trying to subvert, you know, that was something else that was in um, uh, discussed in horror noir about like the horror of like the mid, you know, the teens, the, you know, the 2010s and stuff on, it's like, there's this mm-hmm. real awareness of what had come before we need to subvert um, this plays with that really well. Like we're kind of introduced very stereotypically to this gang, quote unquote, mm-hmm. this, you know, group. Um, we make assumptions about them. We think we know what this movie is going to be. And it keeps sort of shifting and changing and it's having that dialogue. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. your point, it does reference, they make a comment about this is some, you know, 28 days later shit. Um, there's a, a hilarious fucking quote where he says it's raining golems outside. <laughs> the lines um, were just like the it was so cool because like it's you the lines and the um the dialogue were just like really really funny yeah. and it's just, there were there was just so many I should have just written them I should have written the ones down because there was one that was like laughing so hard and um anytime they brought up fucking FIFA and I'm like I should just stay home and play FIFA and I'm like oh right. god <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's lots of that idea of like yeah maybe we should have not gotten involved in this um yeah i also really appreciate the soundtrack because i think it does a really nice job of, mm-hmm. of uh playing like when the cre- you know there's all those weird like they remind me of like 50s sci-fi movies but like you know kind of like weird electronic noises but mixed with this kind of mm-hmm. cool drum and bass sort of vibe um you know electronica um but then with these like little elements of just old school sci-fi cues that kind of gives us a whole other mm-hmm. reading when we think about invasion yeah. anxiety and it adds this other de- really l- lovely layer. Like the opening of the mouth and kind of like almost a little clicking, you know, mm-hmm. and then yeah, like yeah, yeah. the design of the creature was really cool too. Just like just seeing the mouth oh, and all yeah. the teeth when they like fully open. 
Very, yeah, very good. I, yeah, I love uh, so cool, like with their uh, bioluminescent jaws, and then the sound that they made were echolocation noises made by um, dolphin sonar mixed digitally with grunts and snarls of dozens of other animals and a woman screaming. Mm. Which is very cool. Um, I, I love that. We were, we kind of were talking about that while we were watching it. It's like creature design would be so much fun because it's like we've seen alien, we've seen all kinds of different things. So it's like, what do you? How do you? How do you do something that's sort of unique? Um, and so I kind of like, yeah, these creatures coming from like deep space and they don't um, exactly reflect light. Uh, there's this like emptiness to them. Kind of reminds me of the Langoliers, which I, I don't mm. think you've seen, but. Um, that's the one um, where sometimes plane... we should watch that. Yeah, yeah. The plane goes to this weird, you know, slice of reality where it's like, I think it's a few, it's like, it's like they're all living a few seconds behind actual time or something or minutes. I haven't seen it in a really long time. Um, but the creatures kind of remind me of that, these sort of yeah, voids of of you know, yawning mouths of uh, like critters too, you know, mm-hmm. just hungry uh creatures. Uh but yeah, I I uh yeah, I can't. I I really think it's cool. You know, just sort of the empty, sure. dark black. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Any other last thoughts? Yeah, this is good. This is this month has been a good pick. Lots of yeah. good picks this month. Yeah, it's been fun. It. Yeah. 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 So much going on. Um, cinematically <laughs> in these movies. Uh. People are going to like listen to this and be like, what the, what are you guys talking about? But Hey, in almost 300 episodes, what else are you going to say to us? Right. <laughs> That's what we do best. <laughs> no, this was fun. I, I really enjoyed the article. So I will make sure to share that with everyone. Uh, Cause you should definitely uh, read through it. It's, it's, it's really cool. There's so much stuff that can even talk about and so much stuff that I can't even <laughs> exactly put into words. So mm-hmm. um or I can't organize without just reading directly from it. It was a great piece. So, all righty. Well, Joe. Joshua. Always good, good to see you. <laughs> Interrupt the, what is it? Interrupt the cycles. There we go. Yes. Disrupt. Disrupt. Disrupt um, the cycles. Yeah. That was I, another attack the system one block at a time. Yes. <laughs> that was another article that I was reading about uh, attack the block. So yes, disturb it. Disturb the system. Now go, <laughs> listener. Bye. Bye. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.